Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the TALIS Group. On this episode of Defense 2020, I host a discussion with three experts on the issues surrounding nuclear weapons and arms control. My colleague, Rebecca Herzman, Director of the Project on Nuclear Issues and a Senior Advisor in the International Security Program at CSIS. Alexandra Bell, Senior Policy Director at the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation, and Rebecca Heinrichs, Senior Fellow at the Hudson Institute. So I really want to thank you three for joining me today. This is such a deep topic. I know we're only going to scratch the surface, but let's just get into it really going back a full 11 years to this month, April 2009, President Obama gives his speech in Prague talking about the goal of a global zero. Fast forward to April of 2020. Uh, let me start with Rebecca Herzman. Rebecca, how would you describe where we are today and what has taken place between 2009 to today to get us there? Well, that's a lot of ground to cover, but let me just get the conversation started I think 2009 marked sort of a high water point in terms of optimism for the ability to reduce nuclear threats, inspire progress towards nuclear disarmament, and even potentially envision a world without nuclear weapons, even if that world was going to be sort of a fairly long way out, or as I believe uh, President Obama said at the time, probably not in his lifetime. But people were able sort of kind of to imagine that space. And a lot has gotten in the way since then. Uh, You have complex domestic political dynamics, the difficult process of getting New START ratified, laying groundwork on modernization, cheating scandals in 2014, the Russian invasion of Crimea, shifting from a sort of more cooperative vision for Russia to a much more competitive vision, and then kind of a significant rethinking with this administration in terms of how to prioritize um, within the nuclear space and how to think about coalition building in the nuclear space or to not build coalitions in the nuclear space. So that now I, I feel like we're in a place where both internationally and domestically an already pretty polarized you know, set of issues are more polarized, more fractured, and there's sort of a lot of um, disharmony <laughs> inside the community, both across the political divide, but honestly, I think even within various, you know, kind of ranges of political perspectives, certainly across the Democratic uh, community, I think a fair bit of division about what the future should look like. So Alex, would you describe anything in that differently? How do you see the perspective from someone who's sitting inside the arms control and disarmament community? Well, sometimes I've heard people talk about the Prague speech in the sense that it was sort of a Rorschach test that people sort of picked the parts of the speech that they liked and focused there. But I think it's important to remember that the speech was made sort of in the tradition of various other uh, statements that had come out of former officials and former presidents, uh, the 2007 op-ed 
from Secretaries Perry, Schultz, and Senator Nunn, and Senator, uh, Secretary Kissinger, you know, that the line in there about why it was important to kind of put out this vision, it was without the vision, the actions would not be perceived as fair or urgent without the actions, the vision will not be perceived as realistic or possible. So I saw the Prague speech as trying to to marry the overall goal, which is a, you know, a U.S. commitment done through the MPT to pursue in good faith efforts towards nuclear disarmament, but also attach these very specific issue items, you know, part of which was things like the nuclear security summits and trying to lock down fissile material and, you know, trying to uh, stabilize and improve the international regimes that were there. As Rebecca Hurstman said, Nothing happens in a vacuum. There were other issues that started to affect items that were laid out in that particular vision. But overall, I think, you know, the driving vision pretty much since the dawn of the nuclear age is is how do we control these weapons and how do we eventually get rid of them? And I hope it's an issue that does come up on the campaign trail. We're really at a crossroads. Uh, July 16th, 1945 will mark the 75th anniversary of the beginning, the dawn of the nuclear age. And We've got to decide, are we going to be living in a world where the number of nuclear weapons is going up or going down? And that's a choice we have in front of us. So, Rebecca Heinrichs, how do you see that choice as as U.S. policymakers right now in the Trump administration and across Congress are trying to look at the context of the world and also the domestic politics? Where are we headed? Yeah, if I could just, I want to just add a little piece to that first question you had, and then I'll, I think try to answer that second question briefly. First, I would say what what I appreciate about President Obama's Prague speech is he did set a standard for what my view is an idealist view of disarmament and pursuing global zero. And to his great credit, as the facts changed over the years, and as he could see in particular what the Russians were doing, uh, there are certain things that he wanted to do after the New START Treaty and many of his um, advisors wanted to do to pursue this agenda further that he tabled. And he said that we're not going to do that. Rejected no first use. Uh, rejected going down to a dyad. Obviously maintained the triad. Recognized that there was very little margin for nuclear modernization for these legacy programs. We needed to recapitalize them. This was coming from an administration who I don't think anybody could say was not committed to the vision that he laid out in Prague. And yet he responsibly understood that this is still the real world and we have to respond to the to the reality before us and we need to maintain a credible, flexible nuclear deterrent. That's a triad. And, and so I think it's very useful. It's very useful to have that speech and then see where the Obama administration went on modernization, recapitalization and nuclear policy generally. To the second question, there is a lot of continuity with the Trump administration and the Obama administration about what is necessary to maintain a credible nuclear deterrent force. And, and a lot of the modernization that the administration is asking for is finishing or is trying to finish or move further along a lot of the efforts that began during the Obama administration. And then, of course, there's some things that are new in the nuclear post, the Trump nuclear posture review uh, to adapt the nuclear deterrent to respond to very specific threats they're seeing from, from the Russians and in particular. I see a lot of continuity. And then I also see this opportunity because of China and how big China is throwing its weight around on the international stage and the concerns that the Chinese are doing what the Russians have done, which is moving nuclear policy towards the center of their military strategy and how they think about their military, and it's concerning. And so opening these conversations now about how do we rope in the Chinese to these strategic dialogues as we think about 
nuclear policy and nuclear security. So Alex, let's kind of pick up on this theme of what the environment looks like today. Rebecca mentioned the trends in Russia, trends in China. I welcome you to comment on either of those. But also, you know, there's some other big trends that listeners will be familiar with, the North Korean nuclearization program, the breakdown in the Iran nuclear deal, and then maybe less well-known to many is the movement for the Nuclear Prohibition Treaty, which, which went through the UN. Just love to get your perspective on you know, where you think that landscape leaves the U.S. policy community. Absolutely. So on Russia, obviously, we're not in the best position with them. Uh, the INF Treaty collapsed. It's not clear that either side really knows, you know, what its next steps are uh, with regard to uh, intermediate range missiles. But we do have an opportunity on New START to extend the treaty for five years. Uh, unfortunately, the administration has been uh, sort of holding in place on that particular issue. They say repeatedly they're still reviewing it. It's about three and a half years into the review process. I'm not sure what else they're going to learn about the treaty at this point, but uh, I don't know much about gambling, but I know that you don't put things on the table that you're not willing to lose. And I don't think losing New START is in our national security interest. In the same respect, there's been interest in the administration to pursue this trilateral arms control deal with China. Um, I don't think that uh, engaging China in arms control and disarmament talks is, is a bad move. In fact, I think it's absolutely something we have to do. I'm just not altogether certain that before New Start's expiration on February 5th, 2021, we will have time to negotiate a deal, you know, get it uh, ratified and, and entered into force before then. So I, I think in the sense that it's being seen as a bargaining chip, I, I just think that's a bad move. I think we should take the bird in hand, particularly as we're going through this, uh, you know, global crisis with COVID-19 and uh, stabilize the situation by maintaining the stability and predictability of that treaty and then moving forward. But when it comes to eventually engaging China, I don't know that we have the assets in place. I don't know that we have enough people working in the State Department specifically on strategic stability. I don't even know that we have enough translators working at the State Department who are versed enough in Chinese strategic stability to be available to go and negotiate the legal particulars of a deal. So we actually have to do a surge in capacity and also remember that we spent 50 years working with the Russians on arms control and it doesn't work well all the time. Just expecting China to show up at the table and be amenable to these things. I just don't think is realistic. We need to start slowly like we did with the Russians. Uh, you know, for example, we don't have a hotline with China. Maybe that's the first step we need to take rather than all of a sudden expect them to get into a, a massive reductions deal with uh, the requisite verification that we would want and desire. So your priorities it's clearly on Russia are extension, new start. And then it sounds like on China, you have more of a framework that's sort of the confidence building measure, have a series of interactions that build confidence that lead to major arms control. Is that fair? Yeah. And, and keeping in mind that, you know, China is going to want things too. You know, you make deals with people because both sides bring something to the table. I'm, I'm not sure that we've had the conversations about what we're willing to put on the table that would incentivize China to come to the table. So, Rebecca Herzman, let's talk a little bit about some of these factors that haven't come up. So welcome you to comment on what's already been said, but really would like to hear a little more on North Korea, Iran and the nuclear prohibition treaty. What is what does this landscape I mean, is there one theme? Are there multiple <laughs> takeaways for our listener about what is happening with regard to nuclear weapons? 
Well, I mean, I think, yeah, there's a lot of threads to pull in that one. Obviously, you have sort of the the running antagonism out of North Korea and their advancing capabilities that force us to consider a posture of deterrence, even as we seek the ability to uh, look at denuclearization. That kind of changes the frame in which we have to at least ponder reducing the nuclear threat from North Korea. But in this bigger picture, to me, that one's very threat-driven. When you look at the course of arms control, the JCPOA, even uh, the TPNW, the quote-unquote ban treaty, you're seeing the lack of, I think, cooperative, multilateral, even alliance-based approaches to thinking about these difficult nuclear problems. So the United States moved unilaterally out of the JCPOA in a way that was highly disruptive, I think, not only to actually managing Iran, but disruptive to all of the relationships that we need to have in place to work on nuclear issues and in a way that was antagonistic, not only to our foes, but to our friends. Some things, while I I think the INF uh, Treaty was sort of a, a special case in the sense that, I mean, Russia truly, in my opinion, was absolutely violating that treaty. I really believe any President, uh, you know, President Clinton would have had an INF crisis, I believe, um, just because of the way that had been going over the last few years. But boy, there were a lot of missteps in kind of how that handles. And again, how we worked with European partners until they kind of really got through the details. Similarly, a lot of concern about New START. Why is New START seemingly being held hostage to these sort of incongruous, almost poison pill arrangements with China? Nothing wrong with pursuing arms control either bilaterally with China or even multilaterally, but trying to make it square peg, round hole, blended into the new start debate makes it feel like it's not serious, makes it feel like it's just trying to sabotage. So you have all these threads going on. And so when you look at the TPNW, I feel like you start to see a bunch of countries, non-nuclear weapon states say, you know what? You guys are a mess. (laughs) So we are frustrated and we want to look at some other alternatives as ways to put pressure on you. And what's hard about that is it is, in fact, the democratic, you know, nuclear weapons states, United States, UK, France, you know, who are really try to be leaders in all these various settings who feel that pressure. Right. We are the ones that sort of political, democratic legitimacy pressure comes on us. I don't think China's all that worried about the TPNW. I don't think Russia's all that worried about TPNW. Certainly not, you know, North Korea. But for us, it puts a lot of political pressure. I think we've ended a little upside down where the United States ends up looking like the bad guy and the bad guys don't look as bad as they should. So Rebecca Heinrichs, I want to come back to you. Some of those themes that came up regarding certainly the Iran nuclear deal, I welcome your thoughts on, but also in general, the U.S. approach today under the Trump administration. Now, do you think we look like a mess, if you will, as Rebecca's describing what other states may may see, or do you think we actually have a coherent strategy? I would answer probably no to both of those. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that We are a mess, and I don't think we necessarily have a coherent strategy. But coherent strategies are very hard when we have all of these disparate threats in different countries that we're dealing with, with very different national objectives, very different nuclear, you know, ideas about their nuclear weapons. 
And North Korea is a very different problem than Iran, very different problem than, than Russia and China. But, but I don't think it's as bad. I'm not as uh, pessimistic about the state of play. Um, I'll take the Iran deal, for instance. I was supportive of the Trump administration's decision to, to pull out of the JCPOA. And, and the reason for that was, as I always point to this because I don't, I don't, it's not meant to be a political gotcha, but I think it is useful. Senator Hagel laid out in his press release why he opposed the JCPOA very, very well, all of the problems with that deal. So I commend that press release to, to listeners. But it, it simply fell short for, for all of the criteria that the Obama administration laid out in the hearings when they were working on the JCPOA for what constituted a good deal. And I, I'm not an idealist, and so I think a, a, a good deal doesn't have to be a perfect deal to be a good deal. But I still think the JCPOA left far too much room for the Iranians to continue their malign behavior and receive sanctions relief that they could then use to continue their, their malign behavior. So um, I support the administration's efforts to, to pressure the regime and, and ratchet sanctions back up and re-isolate them. You know, it was a bipartisan effort to get us to the point where the Iranians were willing to negotiate on their nuclear program, and it was because of all of those sanctions. And so I think getting back to that point and getting a deal that, that is better, that included some certain things like their missile program, et cetera, would be would be wise. Now, on the issue of INF, I, I don't know. It's you know, I don't I don't want to give anybody credit for pulling out of the INF treaty except for the person who did it, and that credit goes to President Trump. I think the Trump administration tried to get the Russians to comply with the treaty, and they they tried in a variety of ways, and then and then they worked with NATO to to come to the point where they had an agreement among NATO allies. Which, by the way, that was not an easy diplomatic feat. I've talked to many folks in the administration who said that that was a lot of work to make sure that everybody was on board and came out with a, you know, a, a statement in support of the, the United States' decision to withdraw from that treaty. And, and I think it was the right decision, not only because I think it supports arms control to say that we, can, we cannot tolerate these violations to the degree that, that had been going on with the Russians violating the INF treaty and that they have to mean something. And so I think that that was actually good for those of us who think that arms control is a means to an end, which is security. So I think that that was good. And then, you know, I can move. I, I, I think it's fine to wait on making a decision on extending New START. I'm not, I, I'm not one of these who think that we should get out of New START. I, I don't think that we should automatically extend. I actually think it makes a lot of sense to be talking about what we would like from the Russians to improve the New START treaty. And this is not just something that a few folks think. You know, there, it, there are some problems with the treaty. And so we would like the Russians to address, for instance, their tactical nuclear weapons. Um, I don't think it's too much to ask simply because we know that the Russians really don't want to include their tactical nuclear weapons. Um, so I think that that's wise to talk about some of these things, some of their exotic new nuclear weapons that they have that are outside the bounds of the treaty. All of these can be can be discussed while we talk about um, and get closer to extension and then perhaps having a one year extension or something like that. If once we get good conversation going and have some modicum of agreement from the Russians that they'd be willing to make some of these other additions and get them roped into the treaty. I'm happy, actually, to to say that we should have the Chinese in a trilateral agreement, but not make that contingent upon New START extension. Yeah, for those listening, just to be clear, then New START as it is now, does not include tactical or non-strategic nuclear weapons as strategic weapons only. So, Rebecca, just to be clear, your point would be to expand the treaty, excuse me, the scope of the treaty to look at these non-strategic nuclear weapons, presumably also to include U.S. non-strategic nuclear. Is that fair? Yes, I think it is fair. And I think the, the reason I say that, too, is because, you know, when you look at many times, I think people can get to the point where we're, we're just counting certain kinds of categories of weapons when it's kind of missing the forest, the trees. What we really want is greater 
stability and transparency. And, and we want to make sure it's a good deal for the United States. And what is really harming us right now, or what really kind of rubs against what, what we want for our own security and stability, is all of those massive numbers of those tactical nuclear weapons that the Russians have, the open source number of courses that they outnumber ours 10 to 1. And it was a concern during the Obama administration, and it's a concern now. And I think at some point you just say, if that, that is something that the Russians really want and it's so important to them and it's important to us, why can't that be part of the conversation? I think it's fine for the United States and for our diplomats to push on that and make progress on that issue. To be clear, U.S. and Russian forces are effectively at, on the level. There's parity between us. We have more non-deployed strategic weapons than the Russians do. That's actually a, a concern of theirs. And the Russians that I've talked to about next steps in negotiations don't necessarily say they'll never talk about tactical nuclear weapons. They just want to talk about other things like U.S. missile defense or conventional forces. So I don't think it's true to say that they wouldn't do that. What I don't think is wise is to get rid of all the controls that we have on deployed strategic forces in order to get our hands around tactical nuclear weapons. That's something that we can do in addition, but the Russians are going to want something from us. And until we're ready to trade on the space that they want to trade on, then let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. New Start is working. It's in our security interests, you know, when speaking of allies and what they support, allies want us to extend New START. They say it publicly, they say it often. They also want us to stay in the Open Skies Treaty, something the Trump administration is also, for whatever reason, ignoring at this point. They also asked us not to get out of the JCPOA because they did support the treaty. So when we're thinking about all of these decisions that the Trump administration is, is pursuing and making... Again, this is not happening in a vacuum. There are going to be, you know, potentially dangerous consequences if we keep ignoring what our allies think and if we keep trying to hold out for a better deal. So Rebecca Harzman, I think this exchange, I think, really helps understand the range of views, right? The rightful range of views that are being expressed in the American political and policy space. To the extent that we feel that there has been success in the past on arms control, you know, what can we learn from that and bring into this period? Where do you put the prospects on something like New START extension getting ratified through the Senate in the current polarized environment we're in? When it comes to New START, they were pretty smart in how they built that treaty and built this potential for a five-year extension of the same treaty without requiring, you know, uh, ratification or additional actions by the legislatures. So it's a fairly easy do. And, you know, adding to some of the things that Alex said, you do in a new start extension, you also preserve a lot of the communications, the technical transparency, the exchange of information, processes and procedures that are built into that treaty that we benefit a lot from. We get a lot of insight into Russian nuclear forces and, and they into ours, which I think is quite stabilizing. So I think, you know, the baby with bathwater point is a is a valid one um, because you could do a fairly simple extension and bound the problem. There's also some of Russia's newer capabilities they've been experimenting with that actually could be brought technically inside the treaty. Not all of them, certainly not some of the more grandiose and uh, and scary, but some of them could be captured under technical provisions. And so I think you could, again, chip away at some of those problems in a very kind of calm, responsible way. The thing is, that doesn't get everything done in the nuclear space, right? This is a busy 
complicated space with a lot going on and a lot of different problems to be solved. So you're just going to have to put a lot of energy. You still have nuclear terrorism. You still have nuclear risk reduction. You still have the NPT and preventing proliferation. We still have, you know, trying to figure out how to talk to China about nuclear risks, whether it's bilaterally, multilaterally, or anything else. It's very important that we figure out how to do that and to reduce and stabilize those risks. So in my mind, the real question is, how do we go from a vision of arms control that came out of the end of the Cold War that was really a very optimistic world where you could say we could do this about cooperating. Well, now I think we have to still use all those tools of arms control for the purposes of helping to reinforce stability and even reinforce deterrence, but recognize it's competitive. It's not going to be quite as cooperative. But that doesn't mean you can't come to agreements. You can't, you know, negotiate solutions But one thing we haven't talked about, which I think is absolutely central, is making sure our alliances stay strong. Those alliances are our most powerful feature in balancing competition, deterrence, and arms control. When we put those three pieces together, I think that's where we have to find the path forward. And I think we have a lot of work to do there as well. Yeah. So let me just spend a moment on the alliance question because I'm really glad you raised it. I think it doesn't all seem to point to me in one direction, right? Because you have, again, allies who feel very strongly about non-proliferation goals. You have some like Japan that are limited by constitution on the nuclear question themselves. At the same time, the extended nuclear deterrent has been seen throughout the Cold War and and through today by many to be central to how we talk about maintaining our alliances. So, Rebecca Heinrichs, how do you think the United States is doing in terms of reassuring allies amidst some rhetoric from the Trump administration, from the president, that's um, less than flattering to them? And this idea that he has sometimes put forward about states that are friendly becoming nuclear themselves, how do those fit inside a strategy of reducing nuclear weapons states and also ensuring that the U.S. is seen as a credible partner? It's a tricky picture, right? This is my one area where I think my comments will be most welcomed, I think, by this group. I would say of all of the areas, this is one where I'm I'm the most uncomfortable with how the president himself has talked about nuclear security. And, and this is one area that I think, you know, that those of us in the in the nuclear deterrence world and, and thinking about nuclear security, sometimes I think we will we will consider one area settled. There's enough agreement here and it's settled. And I think this is a time where we need to be making better arguments and stronger arguments and re-educating the public broader as to why some of these things have had so much consensus and agreement over the years. And that is on the nuclear umbrella. It is a bad thing when non-nuclear countries become nuclear. I don't want South Korea to decide that it needs its own nuclear capability. I don't want the Japanese to decide that they can't depend on the United States and they want their own nuclear capability. And I think that these are sometimes counter, that's a counterintuitive thing sometimes depending on where your assumptions are and how you carry them out. I'm concerned in particular about some comments from the president that the short range missiles coming out of North Korea aren't significant because they're not long range. They can't reach the United States. Clearly, that's not how the Japanese view it. It's not how some in the South Korean government view them. Depends on who you talk about in the South Korean government on that issue too, I think. But 
that's a problem. I think that we need to shore that up. We need to understand the value of some of these alliances beyond the purely transactional financial piece of it. Though I don't think that that part is irrelevant. I think that it's just a piece and not the whole story. And so I think that that, that's one area that we can definitely improve upon. I also think it's important that the United States, for instance, one, one of the biggest arguments, I think, most compelling arguments for continuing to support the Ukrainians is because that gets back to um, the Budapest Agreement and why we, we don't want to communicate that if you're a small country and you get rid of nuclear weapons, that you're just on your own and you're just at the mercy of these big nuclear powers. That's a bad message for proliferation. I think it's important that we maintain some degree of solidarity with Ukrainians on that point alone. Um, and I also think it's important that we learn the lessons of, I think, the mistake of intervening in Libya. Because though I don't think the point was, obviously, to overthrow, it was an unintentional point to communicate that that if you don't have nuclear weapons, you're now vulnerable against to being overthrown. And and I think that that, that has left a, a problem, a lingering problem, I think, in the minds of some adversaries who believe that their security is simply only tied to holding on to nuclear weapons. And if they get rid of nuclear weapons, that they're going to be vulnerable um, to being overthrown. And so I think that there's a lot of work to do. Um, in making sure that that both our adversaries and our allies understand that the United States' word means something and that it, you, you will have severe consequences if you are an irresponsible nation trying to get nuclear weapons or you're violating these agreements. Alex, your view on the nuclear umbrella to allies, do you think the that still has the value that conventional wisdom has long put on it, or should we think about it differently? Well, I think extended deterrence should be thought about in terms far beyond just nuclear weapons, that it's conventional capabilities, it's defensive capabilities, it's economic and political and legal structures, it, it you know, it's, it's message discipline, you know, and that really gets at what I think has alarmed a lot of national security experts about the way the president has talked to and about some of our allies, is that it actually is important what we say and when we say it and how we say it. For example, the Saudis sort of mused about getting a nuclear capability uh, if the Iranians did. And, and the press secretary at the time was asked, you know, what's our response? And she responded that she didn't know if we had a policy. And my head almost exploded. I was like, yes, we have a policy. No one else gets nukes, not even our friends or sort of frenemies. You know, I, I think making sure that we're speaking very clearly and definitively about what extended deterrence means to us about our views of any country going nuclear uh, and the consequences of such actions. And, and, and sometimes that's overlooked, but uh, I, I think we've, we've seen over the course of this administration how important the public messaging is around this particular policy. Rebecca Heinrichs, Alex Bell, Rebecca Herzman, great start to this conversation. Look forward to catching up with you on the next podcast. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.